preaching through the book of Revelation is a little bit like being one of those directors and writers that tries to go back and update a classic for modern audiences. Can you imagine if they ever tried to remake Back to the Future or something along those lines? Or Jurassic Park. They tried. They failed miserably, unfortunately. Nothing will beat the original. When we come to the book of Revelation, we all come with a certain level of expectation. We've heard a lot. Perhaps we've read books that were loosely based on some of the things that you find in the book of Revelation. Novels, sci-fi, all of those things. We see glorious visions in the book of Revelation. Things not of this earth, yet connected to this earth. When speaking of those who endeavor to commentate and interpret the book of Revelation, G.K. Chesterton says, And though St. John, the evangelist, saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Uh, We find many attempts, and I'm not saying I'm going to make any better attempt. I'm saying there have been a lot of attempts. And those attempts are to unpack a sort of genre that is very unfamiliar to Western eyes and ears. And that is the genre of apocalyptic literature, of revelatory literature, of literature that pierces beyond the fabric of the created order and goes into those things that are not normally seen by human eyes. John is given these visions that he might give them to the church, that they might be encouraged in this. There is a king who sits upon the throne of heaven, the lamb who stands, though slain, and he is in charge of the affairs of men. He is king. There are no other kings. There are no usurpers or contenders to the throne. And whatever we see on earth has beyond it what is seen by John. These glimpses of an otherworldly place, though it is a place that even now Christ in his body sits upon the throne, and rules and reigns forever. And so as we approach this glorious book, all the books of Scripture are, penned by Apostle John to the seven churches there later listed and to the church in every age, we approach it with hope, with anticipation, with humility, with reverence, and all that God has is and will continue to unveil unveil his glorious purposes for the church and the nations. Even as we sing in the Gloria Patri, though we don't often sing it here, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. This short doxology exalts earlier in it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the one who has operated faithfully to bring about salvation to his church, as the Alpha and Omega, the eternal Lord, who has promised and provided for his bride and body salvation in all its effects, all the way down. The kingdom of Christ, we read in the Gospels, is like a mustard seed. And it's the teeniest, tiniest seed in all the garden but it will one day grow to be the largest tree in all of the garden. That is what we are laboring for. That is what we are longing for. And what underpins that prophecy, that promise, 
is what we find in the book of Revelation. Now, as I am going through and I'm charting out my sermons, in this particular book, I have eight sermons planned in the first chapter. Now, there's a reason. Is you <gasps> what? There's a reason for this. It's not because I'm trying to outdo the length of other men's sermon series, but because chapter one provides for us an enormous amount of foundational interpretive information that will not only give us clarity as we move forward into the book of Revelation, but also because what we see in the book of Revelation gives interpretive hermeneutical. Hermeneutic is just a fancy word that means how you interpret something, how you see something. And so a hermeneutical framework is a way in which you approach the Scriptures with certain convictions in mind. One of the ways my seminary professors said it is, um, if you study the original languages, the language gives you the options, your theology gives you the answers. How we live in this world of sense and reason, of taste and touch, all of that is built upon what is undergirding it, what is beyond, what is around, what is filling all that we see. It is the kingdom of Christ. And so we're just going to look at the first two verses this morning as a sort of foundational approach to moving through the book of Revelation. And there's these three points that I want to make. First, a family affair. A family affair. Second, to shortly take place. To shortly take place. And then thirdly, born witness by John. Born witness by John. Now let's look at this first point, a family affair. In fact... We had a little extra page in our bulletin. If you want to use that for notes, you can. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known through his angel to John. So it goes from God the Father to God the Son to an angel to John to us. The book of Revelation is a revelation of God the Father's decrees manifested through the Son of God. This is the manner in which creation has something in common with the book of Revelation. When you look at the beginning of all things, we find a triune God making himself known in the world that did not exist until he made it known that the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, created all that is seen and unseen. And so in John's Gospel, when he says, the Word became flesh, that word is logos in the Greek, this logos, who is the Son, the second person of the Godhead, is the one through whom the Father made all things. By the superintending presence of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does not do for us and around us and in us and in creation that he does not do together. He works as a unit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Don't hear me say three gods. Three persons, one God. And this majestic, mysterious, 
oftentimes cryptic and difficult to understand revelation is an unveiling of God's kingship over all the earth manifested through his son Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one who is taking it and he is putting it through an angel to John. And it is given to him by sight. John sees. And so Revelation is an accounting of what John has seen. And it is not only a revelation of, uh, that comes from the Son, the Messiah, it is a revelation that is about the Messiah. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, about. It comes from him, and it is about him. Look at the verse, beginning of verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Because there is an enormous amount of time between the second coming of Christ and his first coming. And if there is this enormous amount of time, the question becomes what? Why? What's taking so long? Now, one of the answers is, well, God doesn't measure time as we do. And in my own opinion, I think we've got a lot of time left. I don't know that for sure. Don't hear me saying this is the gospel truth. That will begin to unfold as I preach through the beginning of Revelation, why I think that. But Revelation is an unveiling of who Christ is and the implications of his resurrection now upon the work of the church and the sending out of the Holy Spirit. And you need to carry this around in your chest as a weapon. As a weapon. Someone texted me yesterday about picking a fight with someone they didn't know was about to be a black belt. And I said, well, that's the whole point. You're not supposed to know. But think about it. If you've been trained in some martial art, you're walking around and you're looking at people going, I'm not as afraid as I used to be. I know what I can do to protect myself and the people that I love. The book of Revelation is a weapon in the hands of the believer that can be used to combat this sort of circumstantial evidence of this world right now that seems to say contrary things to what is confessed in the book of Revelation. Is Christ upon the throne? Well, yes, he is. Does he work all things for the good of those who love him? Yes, he does. Because the end of all of these things is triumph. Because Christ is raised, we are raised. And the church, the whole body, Catholic, that is united in time and space, is bound to Christ and is victorious because Christ is raised. You see, this is the gospel. That you and I were united with Christ Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And the sure promise of that finished work is that the church will be victorious. It is a revelation about Christ. And because it is a revelation of the testimony of Jesus Christ, 
those things that fall out from his resurrection all come in light of the fact that Jesus is upon the throne. And because Christ is on the throne, all of these things take place. And for this reason, is it a revelation given to his servants? John writes these things to the church so that they may have courage. It is an unveiling that we might have courage. It is an unveiling of the conquest of Christ Jesus and the implications, as I've already said, of his resurrection from the grave. This is what the church experiences because Christ has defeated death and hell. And it's glorious. It is so glorious that at times, John struggles to understand what he is seeing, and we struggle to understand what John is struggling to see. Because there are things that are at times too high and wonderful for us to process. Your little CPU cannot process it. Job had this encounter with God. Job was a wise and godly man. And Job asked for the Lord to give him some measure of explanation for why God operates the way that he does and what does God do. Do you remember? He questions Job. He runs him sort of through a, um, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you the one who can take the hook and put it into the Leviathan's mouth? Are you? Do you know all of the, even as a creature, you don't understand the mysteries of the creation how can you plumb the depths of the mind of God? And all that was in the Old Testament concealed and sealed up is now becoming unsealed and revealed and unveiled. And it's kind of crazy. And I want you to lean into these promises. I don't want you to listen to the world, and I don't want you to listen to those commentators that try to provide some sort of strange, hey, buy my book because I'm the only one that can tell you what these things mean. No. There is plain meaning in the book of Revelation. And the reason why it is useful to the church is because it is plain. Though it may take a little bit of work. Second point, to shortly take place. Now I'm just going to put my cards, some of my cards on the table. My interpretive framework is I'm a a preterist. Some may say partial preterist. Much of what is conveyed in the book of Revelation has already passed. I believe that the beast is Nero, and many of the things that are fulfilled in Revelation take place prior to 70 AD in the destruction of the temple. And what is taking place between the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost and 70 AD is the gearing up of the church that is going into the nations and this tapering off of the Judaic religion of the Old Testament. What we're moving towards in Revelation is the reign of Christ over the nations. And those things are important. The reason I hold to this position is because in verse 1, in verse 3, and there's a lot of other instances I'm listing for, in chapter 22, verse 6, in chapter 22, verse 10, we read this or something like it. Things that must soon take place or shortly take place. Look at verse 3. For the time is near. If you turn to chapter 22, verse 6, you'll read, Has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Chapter 22, verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
And about five or six other places, this is the language that we read. It's coming. Now, just on the surface, children, if your parents are traveling on business or they're away from the home and I have a child in my home, whenever I go somewhere, they want to know when I'm coming home. Is it kind for me to say, I'll be home soon if I don't plan on being home for a week? Or something will soon take place. No. This is why you don't even start talking about Christmas gifts until November, right? <laughs> because the question in the heart of every Christian is, when? When? Because all of these glorious promises, when will you do X? And the Lord Jesus, by his angel, is saying to John, soon. And so the futurist interpretation says, well, still not yet. Are you kidding me? That's cruel. That is misunderstanding the sense of what Jesus is saying to his church. And not only that, as it relates to shortly take place or must soon take place, if you go to the book of Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 through 30, Daniel sees a vision not unlike the things that John sees in Revelation. And this is what he said. Seal this testimony. Seal it up. This was 400 years, essentially, before the writing or the coming of Christ. And now John is told in chapter 22, verse 10, do not seal. We go back to the illustration of Christmas. There's a difference between wrapping a gift and unwrapping a gift. John gets to unwrap it. And what he is saying to the church in the first century, not to the church in some future century that we don't know of, he's saying to the first century, there are some things that will soon take place. Now, it is not all only past, because when you get to Revelation chapter 19, there are things that do await the church. There are things that we get to look forward to. There are things that we look back on. But the first century church saw this testimony. That one of the greatest enemies in the history of the Christian church, Nero, was defeated. And his defeat is connected to the promise that not on this hill or that hill, but all who come to me in word and spirit, that is where I am, the destruction of the temple. Christ is saying, there are no contenders to the throne. And let me tell you this. This was an enormous boost of confidence to the first century church because they needed to know that men like Nero and the five pagan emperors that preceded him had no power over the church. So what does that mean about today? Insert particular leader that wishes to have rule and reign over the church. And you say, oh man, we're in big trouble now. Well, yes and no. You may suffer for a time. In fact, this is where the letters come into it. The letters in the book of Revelation are churches that are adjusting to new covenant life. And one of those churches, Jesus says to them through the pastor, you are about to suffer. That suffering will be bad. 
but it is temporary, which shows us what? God has ordered even the days of our suffering for him. He knows it all. And he uses suffering to do what? Well, to show the emperors and the kings and the rulers and any in power who ally themselves against the church, that the church, even when it is weak, is strong. The church cannot be killed. That's what we read. The church cannot be stamped out. And so what Revelation is, is not a concealing unless you buy my book for $19.99, in which I will interpret all the mysteries of the book of Revelation. Just now, $19.99, if you go downstairs, there's a book table, and you can buy my book, and it will support all my, all my money will go to me, um, however I wish to spend it. So don't worry about that. I'll use it wide. But this is where we are, isn't it? But this is how we always operate. The secret knowledge. This is called Gnosticism. And it's either formal or informal. It's Gnosticism. I will dispense with this secret knowledge. I mean, you've seen the YouTube ads that are two and a half minutes long, right? And sometimes I just watch them just to see, are they actually going to tell me something or do I have to spend the $20? Sometimes they're quite enticing because I really would like to know about that device that gives me 70 miles to the gallon right now. But Really? I ask myself. It is not a concealing. It is an unveiling. It is a Trinitarian unveiling. It is a laying before the church clear visions of what is happening in heaven. And yes, they are high and wonderful, but what do you expect? What do you expect? It's not like some scene in a Hollywood western where you have the storefronts and then you look behind the back and it's just scaffolding because it's just for the setup shots it's just for the establishing shots no there is a world that is connected in relationship to the world that we see and it is as C.S. Lewis would say of greater weight even the world in which we live maybe we are the ghosts and maybe the world that is to come is of greater weight and glory than the one we live in now. And I want you to buy into that story, that reality. A reality of greater weight and greater glory. Because when you do that, it enables you to move through this world with a little less... Well, less affected. As Christ would say... Put yourself upon the rock so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wave and change of doctrine. A Christian who is grounded upon Christ's promises is a more durable, more cheerful, less panicked Christian. Why is this then important? Because Christ has something for his church in every age. It isn't just for them. It isn't just for the church that is to come. It is for the church in every age. That is why it is important to understand that these things are taking place and have taken place. We need promises that we can sink our teeth into. Now, here's how you can better sink your teeth into the promises of God. And here's the number one suggestion. 
You need to know the promises of God. You actually must know them. And in relationship to knowing them, you need to see them for what they are. They are promises. Now, I guess I could have looked at verse 3, but I just want to go, I want to go crazy on verse 3 next week. Because there is this, well, benediction. Blessed. There is a blessing that comes when reading it. You know how many books say that? Now, there's always blessing. But this one explicitly tells us that there is blessing. Why? Because it reveals things to us that we did not know for certain until the book was written. There is greater blessing in greater beholding. That is the beauty of this book. And I've been intimidated. I've been fearful. It will be 10 years in ministry as an ordained minister in about two weeks, three weeks. And I have been largely intimidated by two books, three really, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Romans. Um, I'm getting ready to start a series on Ecclesiastes while I'm in the book of Revelation because apparently I've just become a glutton for punishment. (laughs) It seems to me that the book of Revelation ought to be one of the first books because you have this attending promise. You remember, children, when you look at the Ten Commandments and we read, children, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. It is the only command with an attached promise. Because upon that command, the whole law turns, right? If you can submit to authority, God's authority, your parents' authority, and everyone between and under and around, there's a lot of authority. If you can learn to submit, you will be blessed. If you read and you understand and you begin to take into your heart the things that are seen in the book of Revelation, you will be blessed. You will be given a perspective, a courage, and a hope that no other revelation can provide. There are a number of people that try to predict finances, our economy, what's going to happen politically, what's going to happen globally, What's going to happen? Are we going to run out of food? Well, go back to the Noahic Covenant, right? We stand upon the promises of God. And as we examine the book of Revelation, what we find is that Christ is present with his church, which is why I preach from Daniel chapter 3. Whatever we see of Christ and his glory upon the throne, that glory is not diminished in his dwelling with us. He is glorious in his dwelling with us. And then last point, born witness by John. It is a witness and a testimony of Christ, about Christ, given to us by his servant John. Now, in 2 Timothy, we read that all scripture is God-breathed. In 2 Peter, we read that men write, or hear, see, as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And what John saw was given to him by the Godhead for the edification of the whole body, the one Catholic and apostolic church that we might see. And so we are not simply seeing what John saw. We are seeing as the Spirit, through the Word, communicates to us 
the things that John saw. See, this is how the scriptures are different from journalism, from history, from biography. We see what God wants us to see. This book has been prepared for you and for me. That rhymed. <laughs> Remember it. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to rhyme. But it is ours. It has been given to us for a reason. And however long Christ tarries, we have been given a mission that will result in triumph and victory such that the only enemy left for Christ to defeat on earth is death itself. So what does that mean? We have a lot to do. We have an enormous project ahead of us. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are little pieces of that project of which Christ is the head. Some of you are toes, some of you are hands, some of you are feet. We are all members of one body, but that body stretches through the annals of time all the way back to Adam and Eve and all the way forward to the last people on earth who will serve at Christ's behest. But this is what we will see. Because Christ is on the throne, the church will be victorious. You are not polishing the brass on some sinking ship. Okay? And there are many in the church today who say, well, you know what? Hardship, the reign and rule of Satan on earth, this is not Satan's kingdom, by the way. Amen. It is Christ's. Christ says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Satan may prowl like a, a hungry lion. And there are activities in the principalities and powers of the air that are real, but they are, in comparison to the power of Christ, completely and utterly restrained. The church will be victorious. Which means, because Christ is on the throne, everything you do, for glory of Christ Jesus, whether it's changing diapers, kids, doing your chores, or whatever your parents try to call them, their chores, right? We know it. But if they are done for the glory of God, they are offered to him, and Christ says, I am going to use that for the building of my kingdom. And he does. And it's beautiful. There are no little jobs. But then there is also this glorious work of explicitly and expressly watching and going out into the world. As Jesus says to his disciples, when Jesus says that there will be no particular place where you must go, but wherever the saints are gathered, two or more, where there is word and spirit, which means that this building is but a place that houses the particular comings and goings of our church, but if we move 50 feet to my right and we're in the parking lot, we're still doing church, right? And we're still the body. We're still the church. Christ is using our labors to make more of us. This is why I preach from Ezekiel 47. I've been getting you ready for the book of Revelation. 
If you need to go back and listen to that sermon, I would encourage you to do so. But it is a vision of the glorious temple that is the body of believers. And out of that body is the water that is the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And that water is going out into the world and it is covering over the entire world a river. And the picture that Ezekiel sees is this. There will come a day where the world must recognize that there is a river running through it that is that is the presence of Jesus Christ through his body, the church. Do not judge Christ and his kingdom merely by what you see now, by what you see in this country or one country. I want you to open the aperture of your eyes, as it were, and begin to see things according to Scripture and the promises of God. Now, the beauty of this vision was that it was given when? You know what day of the week? The day of Christ's resurrection, the Lord's day. He sees the glory of Christ. He sees it. It is this testimony of a man who comes face to face with the the gears and the glorious mechanism that pushes the kingdom forward on earth as it is in heaven. And so what we know of God and his plan, he is revealed to us. And a man, a man has told us this. And not just John, but the God-man Jesus Christ. The reason why Christ rules this world is because Christ destroyed death. You get to keep what you kill. I think I've heard that somewhere. Christ defeated death, and so he gets to rule earth, 1 Timothy chapter 15. And so what then are some very practical takeaways? The Lord has something to tell us about the way things are now through the fulfillment of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. John is called to show the church that they are called to faithfulness in the face of conflict. Even as Satan will continue to war against Christ Jesus and his people, Christ will defeat him fully and finally in his time. John shows that the events in history belong to the king of heaven and earth. John writes letters to the churches in Asia Minor that comprise a portion of the book early, chapters 2 and 3, that serve to encourage, challenge, exhort, and above all, impress upon the readers, then and today, that Jesus Christ is present with his people. That presence does a number of things. It gives us hope, it lifts us up. If Christ is present with us and we're misbehaving, what does it do? It calls us back into line. It calls us to repentance. This is the reality, that the Christ who is among us, present by his Spirit, is also seated upon the highest throne of heaven and earth. Another, things will end much like they started. That the Son, through whom God spoke all things into existence, is the one who will, in his time, bring this age to an end and will usher in the age that is to come. Jesus is at the center of these operations, and he is sufficient to take care of both. Even as he created, he will fully redeem. 
Our past, present, and future are bound up in the work of Christ accomplished and applied. So, as we move through this book, this is what I want to show us. How we should live, what we are living for, and what is to come for those who love the Lord.